was a summer's day in 1893. A 33-year-old professor of English from Wellesley College journeyed by wagon and then by mule up the summit of Pikes Peak in Colorado. It was, had been a difficult summer. She was recovering from a bout of suicidal dis despair and depression, even as America was reeling from an economic depression. The Panic of 1893 would lead to 25, 35, 45 percent unemployment in the East and the Middle West. More than 500 banks, 15,000 businesses failed over the course of about three or four years. And in response to the economic divisions of the Gilded Age, this young English professor had founded a house, Denison House, in Boston. It was a women-led institution that was dedicated to serving the poorest of Boston's immigrants, breaking down class and race divisions, to bringing people of different backgrounds together under one roof so that the, the true purposes of democracy, as these women saw it, could be furthered. They defined the true purposes of democracy as a free-flowing life between group and group. So she was an activist. She was a social reformer as much as she was an academic. Catherine Lee Bates, an energetic feminist, a fervent anti-war protester. She had seen firsthand in her work at Denison House the gulf that existed in 1893 between rich and poor, black and white, and in particular the difficulties faced by women living in poverty. She was the granddaughter of a college president but she herself had grown up quite poor. Her father died when she was a month old. Her mother struggled to make ends meet. And all her life, Catherine Bates carried a sense of burden, a sense of responsibility. She understood that because of her privilege and her background, she had been able to lift herself out of poverty through education. And she wrote later, I never wanted to feast with the few never wanted to feast with the few. She was a hard worker, and on that summer's day in 1893, she wrote, I was tired. I was exhausted. It had been a long summer teaching Chaucer in Colorado. And on that day in 1893, Catherine Bates was in need of a break. Jesus' disciples are in a similar situation in Matthew's Gospel. He sent his followers out into all the towns and villages of Judea. We heard his instructions to them a few weeks ago. He says, take nothing for your journey, no extra pair of sandals, no second cloak. If people reject you, shake the dust off your feet as a testament against them. This is, this is not the moment, it's the movement, as Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer and composer of the musical Hamilton, wrote of another social and political revolution in 1776. Uninterested in charismatic leadership or top-down hierarchies, Jesus is very much interested in cultivating this, this kind of broad-based grassroots organizing among the poorest of the poor in first century Judea. And the themes that he sounds with his disciples would not be unfamiliar to the, the kind of 19th century crusading social reform of Catherine Lee Bates. Jesus is interested in poverty, economic as well as spiritual poverty. He sees the deep fissures that exist in his society, and he wants to do something about those, those gaps. So if later Christians have tended to spiritualize, maybe overly spiritualize Jesus' message, as we think it's, you know, it's about sin and repentance and spiritual stuff like that, maybe that's because we have tended to be a little bit uncomfortable with the pointed critique Jesus makes of a society that runs on systematic privilege and division.
And we can safely assume from his damning indictment of the villages and towns where he's sending his followers that these initial days of the Jesus movement did not go well. He, he had prepared his disciples for pushback, and pushback seems to be exactly what they got. And Jesus is angry. In this text, when we, when we first hear from him, he's mad. He says, to what will I liken this generation? You are all like a bunch of children taunting one another in the marketplace. We piped and you refused to dance. We wailed and you refused to mourn. John the Baptist came preaching among you, sober as a judge, and you thought he was depressing and dull. The Son of Man came among you singing and dancing. You called him a drunkard. What will it take, Jesus Christ, what will it take to get through to you? I mean, we've tried everything. The, the truth, he says, is right in front of your face, and you refuse to see it. People are being murdered on your streets, and you casually turn the page of your paper, cluck your tongue, and take another sip of coffee. He's angry, he's tired, and he's frustrated. And these angry words come tumbling out of him, this diatribe against the mayors and city councils of the villages of Judea. He's so, he's so nasty in this text, actually, that our lectionary has edited it out. If you, the sharp-eyed among you will notice in your bulletin, there's a big gap between the first part of what Ken read and the second part. We, uh, we edited out the diatribe Jesus preaches, uh, to, I guess to avoid you know, ruffling the refined sensibilities of a Sunday morning crowd, but maybe polite Episcopalians need to hear the full brunt of Jesus' anger and frustration every so often, because in many ways, I think, he's talking to people like you and me. What he says, the bit that we didn't hear, is this, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, he says, you will be brought down to Hades. If the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. The 21st century blogger Eva E.K. writes, Why was the American Revolution a revolution? Why were slave revolts revolts? Why do we consider the Founding Fathers revolutionaries and not the Black Panthers or the Brown Berets or Black Lives Matter or any, of, any number of other anti-racist revolutionary organizations? Whose rebellion is valued? Who is allowed to be heroic through defiance? And who's not? In 2020, just as in the first century, the nation of Judea is, is bleeding. That's the reality that Jesus sees. His nation is bleeding. The occupying army of Roman soldiers have made crucifixion their favorite blood sport. The roads of Judea are lined with crosses. Political prisoners are being executed right, left, and center. Judea is a, is a tinderbox. It's just waiting to blow. And Jesus is at the center of that tension. He is seen as too extreme, too violent, a dangerous radical, a revolutionary, a threat to the social order. But Jesus himself has a very different vision for himself and for his movement. And after he's vented his, his anger at the privileged class who refuse to understand, he turns to his followers who are equally as angry, equally as exhausted, and simply says, come to me, 
His words are, they're like a plea. They're, they're a warning, but they're not an option. Jesus is speaking in the imperative. This is actually a commandment, he says. Come to me. It's a strategy for survival that he is offering to those who are marching and organizing for change. Come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are carrying heavy burdens. Another way that we could translate that, come to me, all of you who are laboring under the burden of somebody else's oppression. Come to me, all of you who struggle to celebrate freedom when the promise of liberty and equality feels so distant. Come to me when you're tired. Come to me when you're frustrated, when you've been doing this work for what feels like years. Come to me when you're angry. Come to me when you're bitter. Come to me when you're confused by demands you don't understand. Come to me when you feel defensive and attacked. Come to me when you're so infuriated you could spit. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle. I am humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That word that Jesus uses, we sometimes translate it as meek, right? Same word he uses in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But if we hear Jesus, sometimes I think translators have thought, if you say, if you make Jesus say, I am meek, and humble, that makes it sound like he's a doormat. That's actually the opposite of what Jesus is claiming here. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me. I am the one who finds power in humility. My strength is my weakness. Jesus says, if you learn nothing else from me, learn this, how to be gentle and humble of heart, vulnerable of spirit, porous of body and soul, he says, for this yoke, my yoke, this is easy. My burden weighs nothing at all. He's got an indictment, and he's got a promise. You don't get to the comfort of this verse without going through a pretty tough indictment, absorbing and reflecting on the critique that Jesus offers. It's an indictment that I think is meant for us. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus minces no words in his rebuke to those who say to him and his followers, you know, go slow, hang on, take your time, wait. He has no patience for those who would tell him to keep politics out of the pulpit, who urge him not to be so radical, who threaten to pull their pledges unless he sticks to his lane and stays with spirituality, leaves the justice work alone. Those are the voices that grab Jesus's ire. The truth of the times, he says, is right in front of your face, he says, and you are refusing to see it. But on the other side of that indictment is this promise that he offers to those who have ears to hear it. Jesus is no doomsday prophet, right, offering a takedown of the present with no hope for the future. The vision that he offers, this very word that he uses to describe the, the refuge that he's offering to the ones who choose to put themselves under his yoke, under his tutelage, is this word that he's actually lifting from the Hebrew prophet Zechariah, that first reading that we heard this morning. Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem, for behold, your king is coming to you, triumphant and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey. That's the same word Jesus uses, humble, meek, lowly. It's, it's a hard word to translate into English, but that's what Zechariah names as the source of the king's triumphant power, in Hebrew, the word literally, literally means poor, right? It's, a, it's the way of the downtrodden. 
And at the same time, it's described as the virtue of kings and leaders, a word that has shades of generosity and compassion and magnanimity, liberality and strength. Zacharias says, your king is coming to you this way. He's writing to a people in exile. Your vindicating one comes, the one who will cut off the chariot and the war horse and break the bow and shatter the spear. It's, it's the anti-oppression king, the one we might say in our context who will break the assault rifles and the riot gear and destroy the tear gas and the pepper spray, the rubber bullets and the electric tasers. He will burn as fuel for the fire. Military violence is not the way of this king, Zechariah says. That's the image. Those are the very words that Jesus references several hundred years later when he calls his exhausted followers, come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are exhausted, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When your strength is found in this, in this humbleness, in this meekness, in this softness, he tells them, when your power is rooted in gentleness, not in armies, not in police forces, when your power comes from that place, no force, no army, no president, no king, no government in the world can stand in your way. So on that summer day in 1893, Catherine Lee Bates is climbing her way up to the top of Pike's Peak. They're pretty tired by the time they get there. She's existentially tired when she gets there. And from the top of Pike's Peak, she could see as far as Kansas to the east, to the north and the south, or the great Rocky Mountains. They stretched as far as the eye can see. Many of you know the words that she wrote. They're actually the, the ones that she wrote when she got home are a little different than the ones that we know so well. She wrote, O beautiful for halcyon skies, for amber waves of rain, for purple mountain majesties above the enameled plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee till souls wax fair as earth and air and music-hearted sea. We changed those last lines a couple times. She actually changed them. I grew, up, I grew up hearing these words, God shed his grace on thee in America the beautiful. I heard that as a statement of fact, right? God has blessed us above all the other countries. It's a, it's a strain of American exceptionalism that as I got older in my 20s and 30s started to grate pretty hard. I did not like the idea that America was sort of uniquely blessed among all other nations. But when you look closely at the words that Catherine Bates actually wrote, the words that I've been singing since before I knew how to read, I realize that she's not making a, a historical claim about America's so-called favored status. America the Beautiful has been called not our national anthem so much as our national hymn. Catherine Bates is a good English professor, right? She's using the subjective tense, not the indicative. We almost never hear the subjective tense in English anymore. But it would be something like, America, America, may God shed grace on thee until Souls wax, fair as earth and air, and music hearted sea. Those last lines she revised. So when she revised it for singing, Catherine Bates actually pulled some ideas from the Constitution of Denison House, this, this institution that she had founded in Boston to further the goals of what she and her friends called true democracy, this free-flowing life between group and group. She revised the words to say, America, America, may God shed God's grace on thee, May God crown thy good with brotherhood, with sisterhood, with the life that flows free between individual and individual, between group and group. May this grace happen from sea to shining sea.
Freedom is more than a song that we sing. It's more than a flag that we wave. It's a prayer. It's a longing. It's a hope, right? Not make America great again. Not God has blessed us above all other nations. Let's go out there and show them. No, the idea of freedom, the prayer of freedom, is one that I think is grounded very much in what Jesus calls meekness, humility, compassion, gentleness, open-heartedness, magnanimity. America, America, God shed God's grace on thee. Crown thy good with brotherhood, with sisterhood, with true siblinghood, this life that flows free between each one of us, group and group, family and family, brother and sister, from sea to shining 